Well, good morning. Today, today there's, there's two audiences here this morning. For one audience, those of you, this is a time to remember your first love. I want you to think about Jesus and what he's meant to you and why you put your faith in him. For others in this room, this is a time where you know that you haven't been born again, and I want to share with you the truth of Jesus. I want to invite you to listen and then respond. Jonathan Edwards was a minister in Northampton, Massachusetts during the 18th century. And on July 8, 1741, it was about 280 years ago, he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he didn't do it, he did it, he preached it at his home church, but it's when he went to the, a congregational church in Enfield, Connecticut, that it became popular. And he had no idea how popular that message would become. It has been called one of the most famous sermons ever preached on American soil. Whole books have been written about this sermon. Part of a revival that happened here in our own country hundreds of years ago began with this kind of sermon. Telling people that, that there is judgment coming and that Christ has already come and invited you to know him and to turn to him. But here's a good question. How many of you have ever read it? How many? Just a raise of hands. How many people have read this sermon? Right? A handful. Hmm, that's interesting. A lot of you haven't heard it. Okay? How about this one? Over 200 years later, within some of your lifetime, Billy Graham preached to a crowd of 100,000 people at Yankee Stadium. It was on July 20th, 1957. I was just a boy. <laughs> In the mind of God. It was the largest Christian gathering for a sermon in America's history at that time. But let me ask again, how many of you have heard that sermon? Famous sermons, sermons like some of my sermons. So popular. Every, I mean, and yet, and yet, they're easily forgotten. But let me quiz you for the last time. How many of you have heard of the Sermon on the Mount? How many of you? Raise of hands. Almost everybody in here. You have heard the Sermon on the Mount. And did you know that that sermon was preached on a hillside by a poor Jewish vagabond? 2,000 years ago, and yet we have all heard of that sermon. And although it's called the Sermon on the Mount, it may be better described as a mountain of a sermon. Three chapters long. And you thought my sermons were long. Three chapters spans Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a little glimpse of some of the teaching in Luke chapter 6, but Matthew 5, that's the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins in chapter 5, right in the first verse. We'll read it together. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are. The start, of, the start of the sermon, really, his intro to his long sermon is what we know of the Beatitudes, blessed are. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But it's called the Sermon on the Mount because the setting. It's when Jesus was on the mountainside in Galilee. I've been to that very place. 
And there are large crowds of people there. His disciples are there. People are there. His fame has spread. He's been doing, he's been working his circuit around the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and he's there and people are listening. And so we just call it the Sermon on the Mount. Not, nothing creative, just pointing to the setting, but the setting is significant. It's important. Because as Matthew is writing this, he wants us to think about more than just geography. There's a reason he says he went up on the mountain. Matthew, the author, is actually pointing us back in time, 1,500 years earlier to the time of Moses, by using that phrase, he went up on the mountain. Did you know that that phrase in Greek, as we read it in Matthew, although it may have been written in Hebrew first, that phrase, he went up on the mountain, do you know that's only used three times in the Old Testament? Did you know that? And wouldn't you know it? Of all three of those times, it refers to the same person, Moses the prophet. You find this exact phrase three times in the book of Exodus, and it refers to Moses going up on the mountain. One of the the first places in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3, it says, Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain. This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. This is the famous passage where Moses gives the law to the people, the Israelites. And it says that Moses goes up on the mountain. This is, that phrase is also used in Exodus 24, verse 18, when it says that Moses went up on the mountain and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. He was there communing with God, relating to God. Moses was like a friend to God. And so Matthew is writing to Jews familiar with Moses and Mount Sinai. And he's making a parallel between Jesus and Moses. But this isn't the first time he does this. I want you to think of the birth narrative, the account of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospel writers that even flesh out the, no pun, flesh out the birth narrative of Jesus. They're the only ones. But Matthew's is unique, isn't it? Not just with his genealogy, but the way his Jewish background comes through. Think of Jesus' birth. Remember how Herod ordered for all the boys in Bethlehem to be slaughtered in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 and 18? Isn't that familiar or similar to Pharaoh ordering the execution of newborn males in Exodus chapter 1? That's the start of Moses' life. Or when the angel tells Joseph and Mary that the danger has passed. Remember, Joseph and Mary were told, hey, they're going to try to kill him. So they flee to Egypt. Coincidence? I think not. And then an angel comes to Joseph and he tells him, hey, the danger has passed. He, he tells him, quote, those who sought the child's life are dead. Do you know that is a clear echo of Exodus chapter 4 when Moses is told, all men who are seeking your life are dead? Same phrase, same idea. And so you have this parallel between Moses and Jesus, and that's the setting. That's, that's how the Sermon on the Mount is brought to us, and it's very significant, and it means something. It means that Moses is trying to get us to look at Jesus in light of what Moses did. And what we find out is that Jesus is a truer and better Savior than Moses ever was. He is a better deliverer. And he's what we need. He's what they needed and he's what we need. Luke also makes a connection between Moses and Jesus. And I want to point this particular one out because it's the most clear 
God wanted us to think of Jesus as a better Moses. You see that in Hebrews chapter 3. You see that in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 7. I'm just going to read Acts chapter 3. It says that God may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. He's really referring to what already had happened. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, see how Luke is trying to to remind us of what they were preaching on. He wanted us to hear the sermon. Moses said, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. A prophet like Moses. He's, He's referring to Jesus. Jesus is a prophet like Moses. You must listen to everything he tells you, and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Moses was prophesying about Jesus and telling the people one main idea, listen to him. He has a sermon, he has instruction, he has words that you need. Listen to this man. And so you have a blessing and a warning to listen to Jesus, the one Moses wrote about that would be like him. And how is Jesus like him? We'll we'll flesh it out a little bit more. But what did Moses do? Moses led the people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and he was supposed to lead them into the, prophet land, the promised land, but he gave them the law, God's instruction. So with that backdrop, I want you to see how Matthew is on purpose, intentionally, wanting you to think, okay, how is this Jesus better than Moses, like him but better? And so that's the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. So really, the Sermon on the Mount begins with a contrast between Jesus and Moses, and I want to point out three reasons why Jesus is a better and truer Savior. Now, a lot of you will know this, but I just want to challenge you. Remember your first love. Remember Him. Remember Him as as you're thinking about the Sermon on the Mount in this way, because this is important for the rest of the sermon. The three chapters all hinge on this idea of what Jesus brings that Moses could not bring. So three reasons why Jesus is the better, the true, the true and better Savior. And it begins with Jesus' compassion and love. Look at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Seeing the crowds. Now, this is significant. This is likely the largest crowd that Jesus had ever preached to. And for any teacher, for any master teacher or any low-level peon teacher, this is an opportune moment. This is significant. It's like when a sculptor gets a a chunk of natural stone, a big chunk of natural stone and thinks, I want to make something beautiful out of this. Or or like when a carpenter gets a beautiful piece of wood that's just just designed and marveled so, he's like, I want to build something beautiful with this. Or when a songwriter hears the perfect melody, he thinks, that's the song. I want to write for that song. Jesus sees the crowd, and that's what compels him. That's what draws him in. He wants to preach the greatest sermon ever told. He wants to deliver them God's instruction. He's, he's wanting this to be a setup for what the people need to hear because he knows that they need him and they matter to him. And the crowds incited him to preach, not because of what they would do for him, but because of what he felt for them. I want you to remember that. Jesus wasn't trying to raise his approval rating. Jesus knows that these people need to hear his voice, 
And Jesus knows that we need to hear him. He knows that. They matter to him. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. Jesus wasn't a savior in the same way that Moses was a savior for the people. Unlike Moses, do you remember Moses' story? What did he do when God came to him in the burning bush and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and, and deliver my people. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. What did Moses give God? Excuses. He gave him five excuses if you're counting. If you go back to Exodus chapters 2 and 3, he gives him five excuses. We know they're excuses. We know they're not good questions because his fifth excuse is send somebody else. But Jesus isn't like that. Unlike Moses, did anybody have to coerce him? Did anybody have to call him? Did anybody have to make him? You know, it's one thing if someone is told to or gets paid to rescue you. Think of, think of rescue workers, EMTs. They're wonderful people. But do you know sometimes a job is just a job and they do their job? They rescue you and we're grateful, but it's, it's one thing for someone to come and rescue you because they're paid to or they have to versus when somebody comes to rescue you because he loves you. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus wanted to come down. His compassion draws us in. That's the first reason why he's a truer and better savior because his compassion draws us to him. Nobody made him. He came on his own accord. He loved us first beyond what we could ever earn and deserve. And he did it because he saw us. He sees us to who we really are. You know, one, one phrase that's popular in uh, kind of modern, younger circles is, uh, I see you. Have you ever heard that? When people say, I see you, I see you. What they mean is, hey, I see your predicament. I see what you're into. I see you. But it's kind of cheap because they don't really see you. Sometimes people say that to make themselves feel better, like they're fighting for justice. Sometimes they really are. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus really does see us. He sees us in our need, and that's why he came. He came because he has compassion on us. And that's why the, the, the disciples and the crowds were drawn to him. They saw compassion. He sits down, and they want to listen. And I know this is Jewish custom. You know, a Jewish rabbi doesn't stand when he teaches. He sits down. The rest of you are supposed to stand so you don't fall asleep. I wish we'd do that at Grace. You know, some of you, I know this is your favorite nap time. Uh, but you, you know, maybe you should stand and I should say, I'm tired. I've been standing worshiping. I should be able to sit down at some point. I don't get to do that. But he sits down and it says the disciples came to him because of his, he was the true and better savior. He was the teacher that they needed. So there's a second reason why Jesus is the true and better savior. First, he's, uh, his compassion draws us in. Second, his sacrifice wins our salvation. This is the best way I think of how Moses is compared to Jesus, how Jesus is greater. Moses didn't sacrifice his life, but Jesus did. Moses wasn't really the one that delivered the people. Jesus was. I want you to remember how Matthew is compared to Jesus, uh, how Matthew is comparing Jesus to Moses, because what is Moses known for? I want to give you four concrete ways that you can write down, try to remember. If you don't write it down, you won't remember, and it's up to you whether you're going to be a good student or not. But there are four ways in which uh, Moses is known by the Jewish people. 
Number one, he's known for delivering God's people out of bondage and slavery. So the Jewish people looked at Moses and said, our freedom from slavery in Egypt happened because our deliverer and great prophet Moses delivered us out. Now they knew that God is the one who performed the plagues and all that, but there's a Jewish pride and sense in which a lot of them who weren't connected to God thought Moses was the guy, Moses did it. So he brought the people out of bondage and slavery. Number two, he gave the people the law. You know, in Exodus, what I read in Exodus 19, and then it goes into 20, where you have the Ten Commandments, and then you have the 613 laws, as some people say, and there's a debate about all that, but the idea is he gave the law to the people. And third, he gives the tabernacle. And do you know that in Exodus, there is more uh, real estate, there's more space, there's more page, there's more verses written about the tabernacle, the design of the tabernacle, than the law. God spends more time explaining to you and describing to you the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. Because God didn't want to just give us the law, He wanted us to be with Him. Tabernacle means dwelling place. That's where God dwells. God really wants a relationship with you. And that's clear even when you compare the law and the tabernacle just in Exodus. And so Moses gave the design, the blueprints, the instructions of the tabernacle. And fourth, Moses was supposed to bring God's people into the promised land although he wasn't able to. I, I put the word almost there because he was supposed to. Moses was supposed to bring them out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land, but we shouldn't be too hard on Moses. You know, we joke now about Moses and Peter, don't we? Peter sticks his foot in his mouth. Moses couldn't finish it, right? Listen, we're all almost people, okay? You have almost something, all of you. you none of us have perfectly followed through and finished the task perfectly. All of us have almost something, Okay. So Moses, we want to be easy on him, but he did just like us. He missed the mark. He was supposed to bring him to the promised land. So I want you to think of those four in light of Jesus. Now think of how Jesus fulfills these four acts in a greater and better way. His sacrifice, through his sacrifice, he delivers us out of the bondage and slavery of our sin. You know, Moses was only able to bring them out of physical and political slavery and bondage, but not Jesus. Jesus knows that our greater need is our sin, our sin and brokenness, our flesh that distorts us and keeps us from good fellowship, keeps us from a redeemed life. And Jesus dies for us so that we could be out of bondage and slavery of our sin. Do you know the, the scripture says that you are no longer a slave to sin? You're no longer a slave to your flesh. It's there. You find a war at work within your body, where your mind, your spirit, your soul, your heart, it wants to do what God wants you to do, yet your flesh is always there. Evil is right there with you. Your flesh is always hungry for the next self-satisfying thing. Sin most of the time. But you're free from that. The, the Bible says that you don't have to give in to sin, that even with temptation, God will give you a way of escape. And so Jesus really gives us true victory in the freedom that he gives us from the bondage of slavery. And then two, the law. Think of the law. Not only does Jesus give us instruction and teaching, not only does Jesus give the law, but he fulfills it. You know, the law doesn't set us free. But Jesus did. How? Because he fulfilled the law. He was truly righteous. He actually did everything that God has said we need to do. He not only gives God's law, but he fulfills it. And three, he doesn't construct a better tabernacle. 
Jesus doesn't build a new tabernacle. As a matter of fact, you are now the tabernacles running around. You are like the dwelling place of God, the spirit within you. Christ is in you. You are God's hands and feet. You are Jesus in the flesh in such a way that Jesus lives through you and does his ministry through you. That's why he says you're the hands and feet of Jesus. You are his ambassadors. You are his ministers of reconciliation. You are the ones that he is calling out so that people would know him. You are the dwelling places of God. And Jesus, who in the birth narrative in Luke is called Emmanuel, God with us, better than a tabernacle. I don't have to journey and travel to Israel to go meet where God dwells. God dwells within me now because of what Jesus did. Jesus sent a comforter. He sent the Spirit. He goes away and He secured a way for us to be with God always, ever. Jesus will never forsake us. He'll never leave us. And so Jesus brought something way better than a tabernacle. And the promised land. Jesus will bring us into the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is better than Moses in that Moses, what Moses couldn't accomplish, Jesus accomplished. And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to give you a new dwelling place. I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and you will be there with me. So Jesus is way greater than Moses or Abraham or Jacob or King David or any of the prophets. Better than Elijah or Elisha. He is greater than everyone that came before him. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says, all of those who spoke for God spoke of him. The whole Bible is meant to direct us toward Jesus, to remember what Jesus came and to bring, to remember what Jesus did. This is why the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. When Jesus says blessed, he uses that word, makarios in the Greek. Do you know that in the Old Testament when they translated it into the Greek language so that people that didn't know Hebrew could hear it? The Jews weren't too stoked about that. It did help them, actually, in the end. But they translated the Old Testament from their Hebrew language into the the modern day 2,000 years ago, the Koine Greek, the common Greek. And when they did that, do you know that this word blessed was translated in Moses' writings, guess how many times? Once. Jesus uses the one word that they would be familiar with from the Old Testament, makarios. It's used only one time in Moses' speech, what Moses said. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 33. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29, Moses is at the end of his sermon. He's compelling the people to trust him and follow him and not to disobey his law. And he says, happy, that's the word blessed, makarios, blessed. Happy are you, O Israel, Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph? Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. Think about what Moses is saying and how the Jewish people are reminded. Just as Jesus begins the sermon, he uses a word that would point them back to Moses. They're already thinking of Moses. And they're being pointed back to to Moses' writing in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Jesus came to save us. And he's reminding them, if you want the blessed ones, because if you think about it, the rest of Jesus' sermon was written to Christians, not non-Christians. If you listen to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, guess what non-Christians get? Zero. It's actually spoken to and written, if you read it, 
it's, it's about Christians, those who put their faith in Jesus. And so he begins it by, hey, you that have been saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph, speaking of Jesus being the warrior and the king and the protector that would go before them, protecting them and fighting. This just like a sword coming out of his mouth by his word, he will defeat his enemies. Jesus came to defeat his enemies. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. Moses isn't even in the promised land yet and he's prophesying about how the Israelites would conquer the land. Remember how they conquered the land? Joshua had to do it and they get in the land and they had to fight against some, some cities bigger than them, more, you know, stronger than them, some not stronger than them that they lost because of sin. He's prophesying that just like Joshua gave you, gave you physical political victory, Jesus is going to give you true spiritual victory. And as I was thinking about this sermon, one of the questions that came to mind over and over again is, I wonder how many people will be here this Sunday morning that need spiritual victory, that need victory over their enemies. They've been rescued out of bondage and slavery. They're, they're believers, they're Christians. But they're battling and they're losing and they don't have spiritual victory. How many of you in your own hearts would pray even right now at this very moment that God would give you spiritual victory? Jesus came to bring that. He's the one that we've got to turn to over and over again. Let us not forget our first love. He's the one that conquers our enemies. And so when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to see these these ideas of why he's better, but I want you to see the way Matthew is setting it up. Think about the setting in verses 1 and 2. Where Jesus was was helpful because it points us to, G to Moses. So the setting of him being on the mountainside is significant because it points us back to Moses and we see how Jesus is going to do better than just give us the law and bring us out of slavery and conquer our enemies. So where Jesus was was significant. Who Jesus was was also significant, I think more significant, because he's actually the one that is able to free us from our sins, to save us from our sins. Only the Messiah, only the, the spotless lamb could truly pay for our sins. It's not by the blood of bulls and goats that your sins and my sins are forgiven. It's by the blood of Jesus and him alone. Who he is matters because only he could accomplish that task of saving us. But I want you to know that what Jesus was doing also mattered. What Jesus was doing was significant in this setting as you go through the Sermon on the Mount. And what was Jesus doing? He was doing what I'm doing. He was preaching. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving this long sermon. Never is he healing anybody. Never is he feeding anybody. He is preaching and teaching the truth. He is giving them words of life. Look at verse 2. It says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. He spoke to them. So the third reason why Jesus is the true and better Savior is because his word brings us freedom. Not only does his compassion draw us in and his sacrifice wins our salvation, his word brings us freedom. His word is actually what we need. His truth is what you need to be victorious, to be drawn in. I like how Paul writes to us about what the law actually did for us. I want you to think about what did the law do for the people in the Old Testament and the people in Jesus' day? 
What did the law do? Well, let's see what Paul writes. This is during the first century. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he, speaking of God, has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not the old covenant, not the old testament, but the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The law only kills and condemns and judges you as guilty. The law will not save you because you cannot obey the law perfectly. It only condemns you. In Romans chapter 4, verse 15, it says the law brings wrath. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says the law came along to multiply the trespass. Do you know that throughout the New Testament, that the New Testament writers plus Jesus told them, the law is what condemns you because none of you obey the law perfectly. The law can't set you free. Instructions and rules. If you think about it, remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. It's this, this young guy. He, he must have been like the Pharisee of Pharisees kind of guy. He comes to Jesus and he asks him a simple question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be made right with God and enter into his kingdom forever? How can I be, you know, stamped and approved, sealed? How can I have eternal life? And what did Jesus tell him? Do you know that Jesus actually told him to obey the law? That's what he said. He gives him five commandments out of the Ten Commandments. The last six commandments are to us about how we relate to one another. The first four commandments are all about God. No other God, no idols, uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath day. But once you get to uh, commandment number five, honor your mother and father. Commandment number six, do not murder. Commandment number seven, no adultery. Commandment number eight, um, do not steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. Uh, commandment number nine, do not bear false witness. Do not lie. So Jesus starts quoting the commandments to the rich young ruler, and he starts with number five, honor and obey your family. And then he goes to number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not bear false witness. But he leaves off number 10. And the rich young ruler is like, oh, oh Mr. I'm Mr. Law Abider, and I have kept all these laws since I was a kid. Since I was a little kid, I obeyed the law. And then Jesus says, one thing you still lack. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. You know why Jesus left off the 10th commandment with the rich young ruler? Because it was the command, do not covet. And that rich young ruler didn't realize he was a coveter. Jesus told him, though, he wasn't joking or being sarcastic. He told him, if you obey the law, you will enter into the heaven. You will have eternal life. But guess what the problem is? None of us can obey the law. Not one of us in here can do it perfectly. None of us are innocent. None of us are guiltless. We all have broken God's law. And so Paul and Jesus in the New Testament reminds us, you can't make it into heaven this way. You need a righteousness that doesn't belong to you. You need a sacrifice. You need a substitute. You, you need someone to come, a propitiation, a substitute, someone to take God's wrath for your sin, for your guilt. You need someone else to step in your place and bear the punishment and guilt of your sins in order for you to be made righteous. And that's what Jesus came to bring. That's what Jesus came to bring. We don't need more rules. The law only exposes our sin and guilt. It makes me think of uh, teachers. I, I, one time I saw 
You know how like in teacher's classroom they have rules on the wall? Do you know since the 1950s those rules have shortened, haven't they? Have you ever seen a picture of like the 1950s public school rules? There's like 37 of them. And they're like small print and like kids would have to know all these. And it, apparently adults figured out, no, that doesn't work. We need to summarize this, shorten this, you know, the sh- shortest. And now rules are how many long? Five, six, seven, ten rules, right? Ten is the max. You won't go over ten rules. But what does it do? D- does that help kids obey better? If you're a teacher, you know it's no. No. They don't, they don't do better. Rules only expose our guilt and our hunger to do the wrong thing. It exposes our selfishness. The disciples need this, or knew this, that Jesus' word is better than the law because his word brings freedom and life. Jesus didn't just come to bring laws, hey, do this, do, don't do that. He came to fulfill the law and to do better than what Moses did. Remember that time when Jesus spoke about his body and his blood? And he said, hey, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. And the Jews around him were like, I'm out. I'm out. I pat. Like they were following him for a while. And then once Jesus got to the communion part, they're like, I'm, I'm gone. I'll, I'll read it to you in John 6. It's in John 6, verse 66. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. This was after he gave the communion sermon. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom will we go? You have words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Only Jesus has the true words of life. Rules and regulations, laws will not save you. They will just expose you. And you don't need exposing, you need salvation. All of us need salvation. Jesus would later explain this to his other Jewish followers in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 31. It says, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus came to be the truth and to give us the truth and it's through him that we are set free. We need his sermon. We need the Sermon on the Mount. We need his life-giving instruction and words. And so if you don't have freedom, if you're still in bondage, if you haven't been drawn in by Jesus' compassion, today is the day of salvation. You need his words. You need his work. Jesus is a true and better Savior because he truly loves us. He chose to suffer on our behalf. His life, death, and resurrection really win our salvation No one else saved us except for Jesus. Salvation is of the Lord, the Bible says. And his words bring us life and freedom. His words are able to illuminate our mind and set our hearts free. But maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet. I've been praying for you. I've been thinking about you this week. I preach to Christians primarily, and church is really a gathering of believers. But I know some of you are not believers yet. Will you listen to me right now? You can have freedom. You can be forgiven of your sins. If you would cry out to God in your heart, He can hear the thoughts of your heart. You don't even have to speak them. 
But if you admit to him that you are in bondage and slavery and you have done wrong and you have broken his law, you have sinned. If you admit that to him, he is so gracious and kind, he will forgive you of your sins if you put your trust and faith in him. If you believe that God raised him from the dead and that's where we can find real life, you could be saved right now, this very moment. That's my prayer to you and that's my invitation to you. There's a passage that speaks about those who are deceived by the world, and I want you to hear this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian yet, I want you to listen to this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. And with every wicked deception, there is every wicked deception among those who are perishing. Perishing means those who are dying apart from Christ. You don't know Christ yet. There's all these deceptions, these lies that you're believing. Every wicked deception there is. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. Is that you? Have you not received the love of the truth? You know who that is? His name is Jesus. He loved you and he died for you and he suffered and the sermons that he gives and the preaching and the writings that you'll read from him are words of love where he is calling out to you, follow me. Trust me, give your life to me, forsake all else. If you don't have spiritual victory in your life today, whether you're a believer or not, it's because you are not listening to him. But he is speaking to you. And he's offering something to you. He is offering to you words of life. He is drawing you in to remind you of your first love. Many different feelings or circumstances will bring you to the foot of the cross but only in receiving Jesus for who he is will make your heart cry out, Jesus, forgive me, the sinner. And so I want you to take just a moment to pray. If some of you are in here like that, are you watching online? This may be for you. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna lead us in prayer and then we'll do the sending. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are our one true Savior. You came because you loved us. You sacrificed because you loved the world. And you have invited us to know you and to follow you and to give our lives to you. And so we pray if there's anyone listening right now, if they don't know you, convict their hearts. And if that's you, pray after me. Father, Forgive me of my sin. You are the only true Savior. I put my faith in you. Would you take my life and make it yours? I believe that you died and rose from the dead. So I confess my sins to you. Would you forgive me and save me and take my life? In Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that some of you have prayed that this morning. For the rest of us, let's stand as we, as we go out, as, as I send you out. I have a little confession. This sending is a little bit guilt-prompting, but it's not meant to be that way. If you feel guilty, I want you to just feel free to email me. You can, you can, you can email me your problems. You just email me at kyleschombachergcc at gmail.com. <laughs> And just whatever, I mean, vent, let it out. You can say whatever you need to say. And uh, 
Here's the sending. It's a little bit different than the normal. Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? We say, go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you loving God with all you've got? Are you loving people sacrificially? Your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, your peers? Are you loving people with the same love that Jesus has given you? And are you taking opportunities to faithfully lead others to do the same? If this isn't one of our greatest errors in American Christianity, making disciples, you can come every Sunday and sit here and receive and give nothing. But that's not what God has for you. Jesus is calling each of you to go be the church. You are the church. And because of Jesus' love and sacrifice, because of his truth, you actually can go be the truth. Don't feel guilty. Just get moving. Take the words and the truth and the command and the power that Jesus gives you and go lead others to know who Jesus is. Lead them to Christ. You are the church. Now go be the church. Grace, we are sent. I love you guys.